welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 478. The Drabblecast is an audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Starting to get a little fallish out there. I don't know if it feels like that where you live, but it sure does here in Baltimore, Maryland. And I, for one, am delighted, because much like our protagonist this week, I do fancy a cold draft or two. But before we get to that, here's something fun that our amazing listeners have rescued and brought back all the way from Tartarus. And no, it's not Satan, he had other responsibilities. It's the Dribblecast, our fan-run, fan-written, fan-hosted, fan-produced, conjoined, fetal baby sister podcast. And don't ask me how that happened, because it's just the miracle of birth. That's right, the Dribblecast. Just a fun little thing our awesome, creative, story-loving community put together once and, yay, hath verily brought back again with Drabbles. Hundred-word stories, that is, written and posted by listeners that get picked and produced and presented by other listeners. And the end result sounds a little something like this. Welcome to the Dribblecast, your gateway to the mysterious and fantastical world from the official Drabblecast community. Have you ever wondered what lies beyond the ordinary? Prepare to embark on a journey of strange tales and captivating narratives. I'm your host, Scott. Our first story, titled The Appointment, comes from community member Vicious Meniscus, narrated by Ziobox. It had been two years since David was separated from his tour group, Woody's Wild West Time Travel Retreat, is what the ad said. What it didn't say was, don't get into fights with the locals and miss your ride home. Fortunately, the town doctor was gunned down during a poker game the same day, so the position was open. You'd be surprised at how far you could get as a doctor in 1840 by washing your hands and not bleeding the patient dry. Luckily for David, cheating in a game of cards is a socially acceptable reason for murder. Time really does fly when we're having fun, doesn't it? Up next, a twisted tale titled The Tree Killer, narrated by the author themselves, Ted Vishen also known as Stinkender Kesa. The Tree Killer by Ted Vision. There is a new story told by the elders. It is a tale of sorrow, of a giant with a black beard, with his body covered in fire and soot. He has gone to war with the green people of the North Woods. The giant fights alone, aided only by his four-legged demon steed, which is the color of the morning sky from whence they come. None know why he hates the trees, only that he cuts them from morning to night. He sings his war songs and chops, and his blue demon pulls their roots up with his horns. Oh, I got chills from that one. What do you think? Last but not least, we have The Gift That Keeps On Giving, written by Eric Seven, narrated by Di Laffin. The Gift That Keeps On Giving I'm a big guy, but a grass skirt hides a lot. The Bukaki Miley leaf headband is skillfully fitted, as are leaf bands around my ankles and wrists. They symbolize that I'm to be a bride. My bare breasts are old man breasts. 
I'm not a virgin in the traditional sense, but I've never laid with a man. That's all that's really needed. The gods are powerful, but they're not very smart. I'm old, and I'd hate to see some bright young kid robbed of her future. So I walked to the edge and looked down into the volcano. Now that's an interesting way to cope with chills. That wraps up this edition of the Dribblecast, a fan-made creative project in support of the official audio fiction series, The Drabblecast. Are you hungry for more? Head on over to Drabblecast.org to find years of content with more to come. Until next time, keep it weird. <laughs> My bare breasts are old man breasts. How many of y'all were like, skirt, come again? Fun, huh? Want to get involved? You should, you beautiful bastard. What's holding you back? Join the Drabblecast Discord. It's as easy peasy as going to our website, Drabblecast.org, and clicking join us on Discord there on the right sidebar. It's our kind of community hub slash discussion forum slash lunch table for weird kids. And there are plenty of other things going on there. Some of them unspeakable, others, eh, pretty speakable. But for our purposes here, you just want to join and get in on the community thread handily titled Dribblecast. You like writing stories? Write some, you sons of bitches. You like telling them? Tell the f*** out of them. You like the Drabblecast, and you got hot, kid. That's the main thing, of course, so I say let's dance. Figuratively, I mean. I don't really dance myself. I'll, I'll be over here watching. This is your night, baby. You do your thing. Old big sis back here might just pull aside her v-neck so everyone can see her collarbone and give that glistening, conjoined countenance of yours a little air on the show. What you waiting for, Quaid? Start the reactor. Alright, on to our story. Got a Lovecraft deep cut for you folks this week. We bring you Cool Air. Cool Air is a short story that American horror writer and godfather of weird fiction H.B. Lovecraft wrote and published in 1928 in a little magazine called Tales of Magic and Mystery. And this story, as you'll quickly come to find out, has nothing to do with either of those things. It's about science, the opposite of those things. Whoops, I guess. Nah, it's, it has to do with those things, magic and, and mystery. It's Lovecraft, not James Clark Maxwell. What are we doing here? We're going to New York City, that's what? The Cyclopean Apple, where dreams are made and people made maddened by them. So kick back, grab a coffee, a beer, a water, a dog, a car, Sierra Jessica Parker, and whatever, forget about it. Without further ado, we bring you Cool Air by H.P. Lovecraft. You ask me to explain why I'm afraid of a draft of cool air, why I shiver more than others upon entering a cold room and seem nauseated and repelled when the chill of evening creeps through the heat of a mild autumn day. There are those who say I respond to cold as others do a bad odor, and I am the last to deny the impression. What I will do is to relate the most horrible circumstance I've ever encountered, and leave it to you to judge whether or not this forms a suitable explanation for my peculiarity. It is a mistake to fancy that horror is associated inextricably with darkness, silence, and solitude. I found it in the glare of mid-afternoon, in the clangor of a metropolis, and in the teeming midst of a shabby and commonplace rooming house, with a prosaic landlady and two stalwart men by my side. 
In the spring of 1923, I'd secured some dreary and unprofitable magazine work in the city of New York, and being unable to pay any substantial rent, began drifting from one cheap boarding establishment to another in search of a room which might combine the qualities of decent cleanliness and durable furnishings and very reasonable price. It soon developed that I had only a choice between different evils, but after a time I came upon a house on West 14th Street which disgusted me much less than the others I had sampled. The place was a four-story mansion of brownstone, dating apparently from the late 40s, and fitted with woodwork and marble whose stained and sullied splendor argued a descent from high levels of tasteful opulence. In the rooms, large and lofty, and decorated in impossible paper and ridiculously ornate stucco cornices, there lingered a depressing mustiness and hint of obscure cookery. But the floors were clean, the linen tolerably regular, and the hot water not too often cold or turned off, so that I came to regard it as at least a bearable place to hibernate till one might really live again. The landlady, a slatternly, almost bearded Spanish woman named Herrero, did not annoy me with gossip or with criticisms of the late burning electric light in my third floor front hall room, and my fellow lodgers were as quiet and uncommunicative as one might desire. Only the din of streetcars in the thoroughfare below proved a serious annoyance. I had been there all about three weeks when the first odd incident occurred. One evening at about eight, I heard a spattering on the floor and became suddenly aware that I had been smelling the pungent odor of ammonia for some time. Looking about, I saw that the ceiling was wet and dripping, the soaking apparently proceeding from a corner on the side towards the street. Anxious to stop the matter at its source, I hastened to the basement to tell the landlady, and was assured by her that the trouble would quickly be set right. Dr. Munoz, she cried as she rushed upstairs ahead of me. He has special chemicals. He is to seek the doctor himself, seeker and seeker all the time, but he will not have other help. He's very queer in his sickness. All day he take funny smelling baths. He cannot get excited or warm. His little room is full of bottles and machines. He does not work as doctor. But he was great once. My father in Barcelona have heard of him, and only just now he fix an arm of a plumber who get hurt. He never go out, only on roof, and my boy Esteban he bring him his food and laundry and medicines and chemicals. My God, the ammoniac that man used to keep himself cool. Miss Herrero disappeared at the staircase to the fourth floor, and I returned to my room. The ammonia ceased to drip, and as I cleaned up what had spilled and opened the window for air, I heard the landlady's heavy footsteps above me. Dr. Munoz I'd never heard, save for certain sounds as of some gasoline-driven mechanism, since his step was soft and gentle. I wondered for a moment what the strange affliction of this man might be, and whether or not obstinate refusal of outside aid were not the result of a rather baseless eccentricity. There is, I reflected tritely, an infinite deal of pathos in the state of an eminent person who's come down in the world. I might have never known Dr. Munoz had it not been for the heart attack that suddenly seized me one afternoon as I sat writing in my room. Physicians had told me of the danger of those spells, and I knew there was no time to be lost, so remembering what the landlady had said about the invalid's help of the injured workman, I dragged myself upstairs and knocked feebly at the door above mine. My knock was answered in good English by a curious voice some distance to the right, asking my name and business and these things being stated, there came an opening of the door next to the one I had sought. A rush of cool air greeted me, and though the day was one of the hottest of late June, I shivered as I crossed the threshold into the large apartment whose rich and tasteful decoration surprised me in this nest of squalor and seediness. A folding couch now filled its diurnal roll of sofa, and the mahogany furniture, sumptuous hangings, old paintings, and mellow bookshelves all bespoke a gentleman's study rather than a boarding house bedroom. 
I now saw that the hall room above mine, the little room of bottles and machines which Miss Herrero had mentioned, was merely the laboratory of the doctor, and that his main living quarters lay in the spacious adjoining room whose convenient alcoves and large contiguous bathroom permitted him to hide all dressers and obtrusive utilitarian devices. Dr. Munoz most certainly was a man of birth, cultivation, and discrimination. The figure before me was short, but exquisitely proportioned, and clad in somewhat formal dress of perfect cut and fit. A high-bred face of masterful, though not arrogant, expression was adorned by a short, iron-gray, full beard. Thick, well-trimmed hair that argued the punctual calls of a barber was parted gracefully above a high forehead, and the whole picture was one of striking intelligence and superior blood and breeding. Nevertheless, as I saw Dr. Munoz in that blast of cool air, I felt a repugnance which nothing in his aspect could justify. Only his lividly inclined complexion and coldness of touch could have afforded a physical basis for this feeling, and even these things should have been excusable considering the man's known invalidism. It might, too, have been the singular cold that alienated me, for such chilliness was abnormal on such a hot day, and the abnormal always excites aversion, distrust, and fear. But repugnance was soon forgotten in admiration, for the strange physician's extreme skill at once became manifest despite the ice-coldness and shakiness of his bloodless-looking hands. He clearly understood my needs at a glance and ministered to them with a master's deftness, the while reassuring me in a finely modulated, though oddly hollow and timberless voice that he was the bitterest of sworn enemies to death, and had sunk his fortune and lost all his friends in a lifetime of bizarre experiment devoted to its bafflement and extirpation. Something of the benevolent fanatic seemed to reside in him, and he rambled on almost garrulously as he sounded my chest and mixed a suitable draft of drugs fetched from the smaller laboratory room. Evidently, he found the society of a well-born man a rare novelty in this dingy environment, and was moved to unaccustomed speech as memories of better days surged over him. His voice, if queer, was at least soothing, and I could not even perceive that he breathed as the fluent sentences rolled urbanely out. He sought to distract my mind from my own seizure by speaking of his theories and experiments, and I remember his tactfully consoling me about my weak heart by insisting that will and consciousness are stronger than organic life itself, so that if a bodily frame be but originally healthy and carefully preserved, it may, through a scientific enhancement of these qualities, retain a kind of nervous animation despite the most serious impairments, defects, or even absences in the battery of specific organs. He might, he half-jestingly said, some day teach me to live, or at least to possess some kind of conscious existence, without any heart at all. For his part, he was afflicted with a complication of maladies requiring a very exact regimen, which included constant cold. Any marked rise in temperature might, if prolonged, affect him fatally, and the frigidity of his habitation, some 55 or 56 degrees Fahrenheit, was maintained by an absorption system of ammonia cooling, the gasoline engine of whose pumps I'd heard often in my room below. Relieved of my seizure in a marvelously short while, I left the shivery place, a disciple and devotee of the gifted recluse. After that, I paid him frequent, overcoated calls, listening while he told of secret researches and almost ghastly results, and trembling a bit when I examined the unconventional and astonishingly ancient volumes on his shelves. I was, eventually, I might add, almost cured of my disease for all time by his skillful ministrations. It seems that he did not scorn the incantations of the medievalists, since he believed these cryptic formulae to contain rare psychological stimuli which might conceivably have singular effects on the substance of a nervous system from which organic pulsations had fled. 
I was touched by his accounts of the aged Dr. Torres of Valencia, who'd shared his earlier experiments with him through a great illness of eighteen years before, whence his present disorders proceeded. No sooner had the venerable practitioner saved his colleague than he himself succumbed to the grim enemy he'd fought. Perhaps the strain had been too great, for Dr. Munoz had made it whisperingly clear, though not in detail, that the methods of healing had been most extraordinary, involving scenes and processes not welcomed by elderly and conservative Galens. As the weeks passed, I observed with regret that my new friend was indeed slowly but unmistakably losing ground physically, as Miss Herrero had suggested. The livid aspect of his countenance was intensified, his voice became more hollow and indistinct, his muscular motions were less perfectly coordinated, and his mind and will displayed less resilience and initiative. Of this sad change he seemed by no means unaware, and little by little his expression and conversation both took on a gruesome irony which restored in me something of the subtle repulsion I'd originally felt. He developed strange caprices, acquiring a fondness for exotic spices and Egyptian incense, till his room smelled like the vault of a sepulchred pharaoh in the Valley of Kings. At the same time, his demands for cold air increased, and with my aid he amplified the ammonia piping of his room, and modified the pumps and feed of his refrigerating machine, till he could keep the temperature as low as 34 or 40 degrees, and finally even 28 the bathroom and laboratory, of course, being less chilled, in order that water might not freeze and that chemical processes might not be impeded. The tenant adjoining him complained of the icy air from around the connecting door, so I helped him fit heavy hangings to obviate the difficulty. A kind of growing horror seemed to possess him. He talked of death incessantly, but laughed in a hollow way when such things as burial or funeral arrangements were gently suggested. All in all, he became a disconcerting and even gruesome companion. Yet in my gratitude for his healing, I could not well abandon him to the strangers around him, and was careful to dust his room and attend his needs every day, muffled in a heavy ulster which I bought especially for the purpose. I likewise did much of the shopping, and gasped in bafflement at some of the chemicals he ordered from druggists and laboratory supply houses. An increasing and unexplained atmosphere of panic seemed to rise around the apartment. The whole house, as I have said, had a musty odor, but the smell in his room was worse, and in spite of all the spices and incense and the pungent chemicals of the now incessant baths which he insisted on taking unaided, I perceived that it must be connected with his ailment, and shuddered when I reflected on what his ailment might be. Miss Herrero crossed herself when she looked at him, and gave him up unreservedly to me, not even letting her son Esteban continue to run errands for him. When I suggested other physicians, the sufferer would fly into as much of a rage as he seemed to dare entertain. He evidently feared the physical effect of violent emotion, yet this will and driving force waxed rather than waned, and he refused to be confined to his bed. The lassitude of his earlier ill days gave place to a return of his fiery purpose, so that he seemed about to hurl defiance at the death demon, even as that ancient enemy seized him. The pretense of eating, always curiously like a formality with him, he virtually abandoned, and mental power alone appeared to keep him from total collapse. He acquired a habit of writing long documents of some sort, which he carefully sealed and filled with injunctions that I transmit after his death to certain persons whom he named, for the most part East Indians, but including once a celebrated French physician now generally thought dead, and about whom the most inconceivable things had been whispered. As it happened, I burned all these papers undelivered and unopened. His aspect and voice became utterly frightful, and his presence almost unbearable. 
One September day, an unexpected glimpse of him induced an epileptic fit in a man who'd come to repair his electric desk lamp, a fit for which he prescribed effectively whilst keeping himself well out of sight. That man, oddly enough, had been through the terrors of the Great War without having incurred any fright so thorough. Then, in the middle of October, the horror of horrors came with stupefying suddenness. One night, about 11, the pump of the refrigerating machine broke down so that within three hours the process of ammonia cooling became impossible. Dr. Munoz summoned me by thumping on the floor, and I worked desperately to repair the injury while my host cursed in a tone whose lifeless, rattling hollowness surpassed description. My amateur efforts, however, proved of no use, and when I brought in a mechanic from a neighboring all-night garage, we learned that nothing could be done till morning, when a new piston would have to be obtained. The moribund hermit's rage and fear, swelling to grotesque proportions, seemed likely to shatter what remained of his failing physique, and once a spasm caused him to clap his hands to his eyes and rush to the bathroom, he groped his way out with a face tightly bandaged, and I never saw his eyes again. The frigidity of the apartment was now sensibly diminishing, and at about 5 a.m. the doctor retired to the bathroom, commanding me to keep him supplied with all the ice I could obtain at all-night drugstores and cafeterias. As I would return from my sometimes discouraging trips and lay my spoils before the closed bathroom door, I could hear a restless splashing within, and a thick voice croaking out the orders for more, more. At length, a warm day broke, and the shops opened one by one. I asked Esteban either to help with the ice fetching whilst I obtained the pump piston, or to order the piston while I continued with the ice, but instructed by his mother, he absolutely refused. Finally, I hired a seedy-looking loafer whom I encountered on the corner of 8th Avenue to keep the patient supplied with ice from a little shop where I introduced him, and applied myself diligently to the task of finding a pump piston and engaging workmen competent to install it. The task seemed interminable, and I raged almost as violently as the hermit when I saw the hours slipping by in a breathless, foodless round of vain telephoning, and a hectic quest from place to place, hither and thither by subway and surface car. About noon, I encountered a suitable supply house far downtown, and at approximately 1.30 p.m. arrived at my boarding place with the necessary paraphernalia and two sturdy and intelligent mechanics. I had done all I could, and I hoped I was in time. Black terror, however, had preceded me. The house was in utter turmoil, and above the chatter of awed voices I heard a man praying in a deep basso. Fiendish things were in the air, and lodgers told over the beads of their rosaries as they caught the odor from beneath the doctor's closed door. The lounger I'd hired, it seems, had fled screaming and mad-eyed not long after a second delivery of ice, perhaps as a result of excessive curiosity. He could not, of course, have locked the door behind him, yet it was now fastened, presumably from the inside. There was no sound within, save a nameless sort of slow, thick, dripping. Briefly consulting with Miss Herrero and the workmen, despite a fear that gnawed my innermost soul, I advised the breaking down of the door, but the landlady found a way to turn the key from the outside with some wire. We had previously opened the doors to all the other rooms in that hall and flung all the windows to the very top. Now, noses protected by handkerchiefs, we tremblingly invaded the accursed south room which blazed with the warm sun of early afternoon. 
A kind of dark, slimy trail led from the open bathroom door to the hall, and thence to the desk, where a terrible little pool had accumulated. Something was scrawled there in pencil, in an awful blind hand on a piece of paper hideously smeared as though by some very claws that traced the hurried last words. Then the trail led to the couch and ended unutterably. What was, or had been, on the couch I cannot and dare not say here, but this is what I shiveringly puzzled on that sticky piece of smeared paper before I drew a match and burned it to a crisp. What I puzzled out in terror as the landlady and two mechanics rushed frantically from that hellish place to babble their incoherent stories at the nearest police station. The nauseous word seemed well-nigh incredible in that yellow sunlight, with the clatter of cars and motor trucks ascending clamorously from 14th Street, yet I confess that I believed them then. Whether I believe them now, I honestly do not know. There are things about which it is better not to speculate. And all I can say is that I hate the smell of ammonia and grow faint at a draft of unusually cool air. The end, ran that noisome scrawl is here. No more ice. The man looked and ran away. Warmer every minute. The tissues can't last. I fancy you know what I said about the will and the nerves and the preserved body after the organ ceased to work. It was good theory, but couldn't keep up indefinitely. There was a gradual deterioration I had not seen. Dr. Torres knew, but the shock killed him. He couldn't stand what he had to do. We had to get me in a strange, dark place where he minded my letter and nursed me back, and the organs never would work again. It had to be done my way, artificial preservation. For you see, I died that time, 18 years ago. was our story. Hope you enjoyed. You're gonna get pumps, you're gonna want a warranty. It's as simple as that, folks. It's Absorption Systems 101. Even I know that, and I don't know squat about stuff that needs pistons and pipes and lots of bottles in order to work, because I just have Esteban do everything for me, and you know what? Turns out using him as a crutch for so long has come at a great personal cost. But hey, you live and you learn, right? And that's how we grow. Nah, if it's skillful ministrations you're looking for, try starting with someone who knows what that word means, because this guy right here? Not even curious. I am, however, a bit of a medievalist, so if it's incantations we're talking about, I'm in. And cantate. Ah, oh, man, Lovecraft never misses an opportunity to talk shit about a cornice, does he? Ridiculously ornate stucco cornice. That's what he called it. Ridiculously ornate. That's what that one is. Look at it, you see that cornice? Ridiculous. First the pea smell in here, then the din of streetcars below in the thoroughfare. The thoroughfare, for Christ's sakes, and now this, this over-elaborate, flowery, tumescent, magniloquent, grandiloquent, protuberant, purple-ass piece of shit cornice right up there where the wall meets the roof line. You see it? Hard to miss. It's the most ornate, least Euclidean cornice you've ever seen in your life, I bet. And on top of that, it's stucco. Because of course it is, right? Of course it is. And you know what that wallpaper is there? Impossible.
Well, a little bit of news for you folks real quick here before we close out the show, and a sincere thank you from the bottom of our hearts to Cameron Howard, who's stepping away as Drabblecast's managing editor after several fine years of good work working with our slush team to find you good stories. And he's also the guy that got the tentaculum going, our Patreon-exclusive quarterly e-zine. We so appreciate your weirdness and your hard work, Cam, and we wish you more ice and all the best. Stepping in is Drabblecast's new managing editor, Nicole Neely. Nicole's been a Drabblecast listener for a long time, and has been superstarring in our slush team for about a year now, so she knows the drill and what kind of cornices you folks regard as bearable. She's a writer, underwriter, and overruler who hails from Ohio, and in addition to having a curious fondness for exotic spices, she likes spooky, weird, and otherwise interesting stories, gaming, momming, and molting, and we are delighted to have her on board and secretly hooked into our dripping, ghastly apparatus. Welcome aboard. And on that note, we also bid you adieu. Because the end is here. The man looked and ran. The tissue cannot last. That's our show, and I've been dead this whole time. How you like that, you elderly and conservative Galens? Special thanks to our episode artist, just amazing this week, Catriel Tolerico. Catriel works as a freelance designer and illustrator and loves science fiction and horror. Check him out on Instagram, linked in our show notes. Our program was brought to you this week by Nicole Neely, Bo Kyer, Oren Pratt, Jocelyn Gerwig, Joseph Pietrus, Bart Epstein, a once celebrated French physician now generally thought dead, Wyatt Scott, Ashley L., and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to not let Esteban run errands for him. <laughs>